We're uh, working through a series on spiritual disciplines this summer, and uh, I'm going to be talking about community. Community as a spiritual discipline, like we actually interact with each other, and that's important. Um, so, uh, is there a single text? Why, well, no, there's not. Um, so, I hope you got your Bibles ready. Your sword drills, that's what I grew up doing, right? finding, finding these places. In the New Testament, there are various images for what the community of believers is. And I want to focus on one that is used far and away the most often. The, the, broadly speaking, the Bible calls us the people of God. Okay, this is good. That's, that's a broad statement. We belong to God. We are his people. He is our God. Um, but there's other images that express truths also about who we are. So, for example, the Bible calls us a temple, meaning this is where the Spirit of God dwells with his people, the temple. Um, it refers to us as priests, which emphasizes the idea that God's mediating presence and work in this world is done through his church. There's the picture of the bride, that we are the objects of Christ and God's love and devotion. There's the image of a flock of sheep, which emphasizes our stupidity. <laughs> we all, like sheep, have wandered astray. <laughs> right. and, and our utter dependence on him. There is the image that we are the body of Christ, which expresses our unity with Christ, he and us, we and him, that we are united to Christ together, and then the, the body of Christ also emphasizes the fact that we ourselves are not all in all. You don't have all the gifts. Like a body, like the arm needs blood, so the blood comes through veins. So we need each other to work together for the body to function properly. And though these are, these are images that are, are helpful and true, there is one that's brought up more than all of them. It's brought up hundreds of times in the New Testament whereas these images are brought up only a handful of times. And it's so common that we just read over it, like, yep, 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 and don't even really acknowledge the, the emphasis that the New Testament is putting on it. And that is the image of the church as family. It is referenced to over 100 times. Now, I want to pick up four ideas that are in the New Testament as a church family. So I'll just tell you up front what these four things will be, and then we'll work through them. So when we look at the New Testament, it says, what does it mean for the church to be the family of God? First of all, who we consider to be family is more than just me, my wife, and my kids. God extends the borders of your family. Second of all, we are told that we are to share our hearts with one another. Third, we're to grow with one another. And fourth, we're to share our stuff with one another. Stuff that good functioning families do. Now, on the outset, I'm not sure what your background was with your family. There's good families and there's bad families. Well, <laughs> there's good families, which is God's grace on that family. It's no perfect family. But there are very dysfunctional families. So one of the things in this is that we understand that we look to the Bible for what a good family should be and what a loving father would be. And that is our standard. 
and it, and it helps heal maybe past hurts that we have experienced in our families. So, first of all, who we consider to be family is more than just me, my wife, and my kids. So, to kind of rightly understand what the Bible says about this, we need a little bit of um, context. So, in the culture, the Jewish culture, the, the whole Mediterranean culture, where like ancient people come from, the family unit consisted more of me, my wife, and my kids. It's kind of an American thing. It's a Western thing that my that you have like the nuclear family and then the extended family. Like that whole idea is kind of weird in terms of history. Like your family was like your wife, your kids, your mama, your papa, your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, and you all formed like this tribe of a family. And your loyalty was not just to your wife and your kids, but to your brothers and your sisters and your father and your mother and your cousins. Like there was loyalty expected out of you. Not only that, your your identity, like who are you? I am a Smith, right? Or I am a Gill, fish, right? Obviously. <laughs> and so like that that unit, that broader unit, was never challenged by Jesus. He said, you know, you guys got this really messed up family structure. <laughs> never does that. In fact, he just assumes it and commands you to do things in light of that. So, your well-being, if you live in that culture, your well-being rose and fell together. If your, if your brother fell into poverty, it was expected that you would band together as a family and lift them up any way possible. The relationship with your siblings and with your mom and your dad and your grandma and your grandpa, all those are supposed to be deep and intimate. Much in the way that many American families aren't. Someone convicted about my brothers over in Chico. Don't talk to them, except when I see them. (laughs) So yeah, got to work on that. Okay. Then in steps Jesus into these cultures with these strong like family dynamic stuff. And he just starts blowing the world away. Just breaking down their paradigm. So first, it seems simple, because Jesus tells his followers that we can address God as a father. You're like, oh, that's wonderful. God is father. But then you realize if you have a father, then you probably have brothers and sisters as well. And in fact, guess what the Bible starts doing? Calling each other brothers and sisters. Now get this. When you read, greetings brothers from the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace upon you, we often read the word brother and sister like a punctuation mark. Blessings, brother. Whereas in the Bible, they mean it to be bullets in an argument. We treat it like a punctuation mark when it's meant to be bullets in an argument. And actually, if you read through the whole New Testament, look at when the word brother and sisters come up. Often, there's an issue. And, that, and Paul and the apostles are trying to draw people together. It's like, you are brothers. So, for example, in that culture, in the Mediterranean culture, if you got swindled by your neighbor, take them to court. If you got swindled by local mayor, take them to court. Family honor. But if your brother swindled you, you just take the hit. You don't dishonor the family. So then, in the New Testament, Paul says, why are you taking your brother to court? See? 
It's not just saying, why are you taking your brother? It's like, brother, as like, hey, bro, how's it going? No. Why would you take your brother to court? It's dishonoring to the unit. Now, I'm sure that there were times when the disciples were getting uncomfortable with this idea. You're like, yeah, you know, Jesus and his hyperboles. <laughs> I mean, it's an example of what Jesus is talking about. We're like a family. We're not really a family. I mean, because consider, consider who Jesus put together. Like, a ragtag family of redneck fishermen, corrupt tax collectors, rebel zealots, a couple hothead mama boys. Like, yeah, like, this is an interesting family, right? And that's just like the Jewish culture. And then it starts being like, and then Jews and Gentiles, like people completely on the other side of everything you stand for are being brought together into a family. And so you're like, we're like a family, Jesus. No, Jesus insists you are a family. So, remember when he sees James and John fishing with their father? Now look, they're doing the right thing. If your granddaddy's a fisherman and your daddy's a fisherman, you're a fisherman, and your kids are going to be fishermen, unless something crazy happens, like a government comes and brings you into exile. Okay, so maybe you're not going to be a fisherman over in like exile land. But like the expectation is that you're going to follow in the lineage of your family and take care of your father and continue the family business. Well, he shows up to them, looks at them working with their dad and says, leave your nets, follow me. What? Leave the family profession? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And turn that around. Or there's that time when Jesus shows up with the mothers and brother, uh, his mother and brothers show up, like, Jesus, you're going crazy. We need to talk to you. Remember, they're outside. And they said, hey, Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers are here. You need to go talk to them. Now, understand that they had every social right to demand that of him. He's making the family look bad. Like, they had every right to say, you need to come talk to us. And Jesus, socially, should have gone out and talked to him. But he replies, who's my mother and my brothers? And he stretched out his hands to his disciples and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And there's that time someone said, hey, let me bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Okay, now look. Squeamish? Yeah, you think you're squeamish. They're really squeamish. This, this is like a gut punch. Like, how, how are we, like, we were supposed to honor our family and do all these things. Now, there'll be balance, for sure. But Jesus says, you belong to another family now. When the disciples go out to preach the kingdom of the gospel of God, go, proclaim this gospel. Jesus said, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious on how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaks through you. Spirit of your Father. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and child will rise against parents and have them put to death. He says, I have come not to bring, to bring a sword and cut these things. Now, there are times that our obligation to our Heavenly Father 
does not conflict with our obligations to our earthly father or our earthly family. There are times that they don't conflict. And some of us are in the blessed position that your earthly family and spiritual family are the same family. But there are times when there is conflict, that what God calls you to do is going to put you in conflict with your spirit, your, your spiritual father calls you, puts you in conflict with your earthly family, your earthly father. In which case, when those moments happen, then Jesus tells us that our loyalty and obligation is to our heavenly father and to our spiritual brothers and sisters, and that supersedes our obligation to our earthly family. Because think about this. In terms of like good retirement, taking care of your family, how does martyrdom sound? How does life in prison sound? Your kids are going to be destitute. Your wife is going to be destitute. Yet, to the stake you go, and to the prison you stay, you do not recant. What about the destitute wife and kids? The family, the spiritual family, was going to take care of them. Now, that's when they're in conflict. At the same time, just because you got moved into another family doesn't mean that your obligations to your earthly family are taken away. So you have a spiritual family that supersedes your earthly family, but you still have an obligation to your earthly family, just like you belong to the kingdom of God, first and foremost, and then to a kingdom. And you have, pay your taxes, don't disobey the law. So you, you have both, but the kingdom of God is more important. Similarly, your heavenly Family is more important, but you still have an obligation to an earthly family. So, for example, you probably already thought of this verse when I was talking through this, because I was thinking about this verse the whole time. Paul says if someone will not take care of their earthly family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Remember that? And he was actually referring to extended family in that moment. Like you're, uh, it's like your widowed mom or something like that. You're not taking care of your widowed mom. If you will not take care of your earthly family, then you're worse than an unbeliever. So you still have that obligation. Now, think about what Jesus is calling him to do. In a sense, your loyalty to that family that you were just raised on. Like as much as Americans are red-blooded, red, white, and blue, apple pie and baseball, like this is who we are. Like Jesus is challenging that very thing to them. But I think equally, like this idea of what God expects expects our family to be, should even be a little bit of a paradigm shift for us. That we take care of brothers and sisters in the faith. And it's demanded of us. We're going to look at some scriptures. It's demanded of us. That we are willing to place our needs above, no, their needs above our needs. So, who we consider family is more than just your wife, your kids. Secondly, we're to share our hearts with one another. So here's uncomfortable, right? Share our hearts with one another. If God is indeed your father, we're adopted to his family, then expected that we would have the emotional bond that family members have. We are not just to coexist with one another sit next to someone on a pew. We are expected to have genuine affection for one another. So, quote, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Love each other how? Not just like with good deeds and like, I love you, brother. No, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So can I just state the obvious? I like you all. (laughs) But still, (laughs) like, I don't know, if you've been around me, I'm a little prickly. (laughs) Not always a warm, fuzzy, affectionate. I mean, that's kind of a tall task because God puts you in a church, he puts you in a church family, and in some sense you get to choose what church you show up to. But then as time rolls on, new members show up, and you're like, this person and that person. And it's just not comfortable anymore. It's like, you got, you thought you had like a crazy uncle, but now you got like tons of them. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> that we're, we're expected to have genuine affection for people that we, and all other reasons, wouldn't like them. Like, we would not spend any time with these people. I'm not pointing to anybody in particular here, by the way. Don't, don't feel that way. I'm just saying, like, this is like general statements of like, yeah, that's precisely what God's calling you to do. To have affection for people that you otherwise would have no affection for. So now, like, now how do you do that? God? I always go so far to say that the same Spirit who changes our hearts from those who are the enemies of God who now cry, Abba, Father, will empower us to have affection for one another. If you will not call it he will not just make you call God Father. He'll let you know that you're adopted as sons, and as sons, you're in a family together. The Spirit is going to draw the family together. Oftentimes, the primary means of Paul's affection for the church is expressed in prayer. His affection for the church is expressed in prayer. He said, you know, after uh, Bob preached on this a couple weeks ago, that after Paul had spoken of all the great truths in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, because, like, because God has saved you and all these great things are happening for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think that would be a good place to start. And not just to pray for someone's be well, go in peace. But for their spiritual growth and well-being, for boldness in the proclamation of the gospel, for protection from the evil one, pray for these people as you would pray for your kids as you know what days they're facing ahead of them. Now, <clears throat> open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And if, uh, see, if you've got one of these cool color-coded, like, awesome, nice blue with white, gold trim, it's page uh, 677. Okay, so I am going to read all of Philippians 2. I've been getting into big chunks of Scripture recently. I felt like I did this last time. But it's so helpful to look at the big argument being made. Okay, when we look through Philippians 2... I want to kind of just keep our eyes on a couple things. First of all, the language of unity and affection. Look how it shows up the whole time. And notice how Paul's motivating it. 
How do you have affection and unity? Well, he'll show us. And then, right when all the fun verses are over, you're like, okay, that's it for Philippians 2. No, no, no. The next section where he gives an example of those who have love and affection for the church. Okay, so look for the language of love and unity, how Paul inspires and motivates it, and then examples of people who have this. So, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now pause real quick. Sometimes Paul writes a letter to a church because they're having doctrinal issues. Sometimes he's writing to a church because I haven't met you, but here's some great truths. He's talking to the church of Philippi because they're fighting with each other. We'll see that in a little bit. They're fighting. Kind of a problem. Okay. So he's like, one mind, one love. Sounds like a song. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <sighs> How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world. Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's usually where I stop reading Philippians chapter 2 until the next day when I start my devotions. But then it keeps going. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now look, Paul sending Timothy. Paul's in prison. Paul's lonely. Paul is cold. Prisons like there was no plasma TV, good food in the prisons in the Roman system. It was like a dark pit. Lonely, dark pit. And he's like, I am going to send Timothy away from me to you. So that's an act of love, by the way. Verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's worth. 
How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as I now, uh, send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldiers, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed. Because you, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only to him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So look. You got problems, don't we all? Solution to the, problem, the problems. The gospel. What God has done for us. And what is available to us. Have this mind which is yours. You can have this. It's God who works in you to will and act according to His good purpose. That, I have these friends who are walking on the Great Wall of China and like everybody's trying to sell them watches. Like, hey, you want to buy a watch? Hey, you want to buy? They begin to realize, like, all these people could say is, hey, you want to buy a watch? Then they bump into some people who are clearly Americans, and they're like, "I'm so excited to see an American! Joy, happiness, like unity, fellowship." And they said, "Hey, you want to buy a watch?" And walked on, like laughing, <laughs> like so disappointed, <laughs> like, "What? <laughs> we were supposed to have fellowship that only people of a like community could have." We are all saved. We have the same Father. How could you not forgive the sin of someone that the Father has forgiven the sin of? How can you have hatred for those who God loves? It cannot be. Third, we grow with one another. So we're supposed to have affection for one another and we're supposed to grow with one another. Now, our spiritual growth is not intended to be done in isolation. You don't grow in isolation. We're to grow as a community. And often, that's exactly the way the Bible speaks. When it's addressing these things, it's like, you all, you all. I wish the Bible said y'all, because that would be really helpful. Y'all, 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 y'all. It's so many times it's y'all and not you, individual you. It's y'all do this together. So jump over to chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So we grow with one another. Now, if you're growing with one another and we're a bunch of sinners, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have conflict. You're going to fight. All right. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a punctuation mark. It's a bullet in an argument. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm... In the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's two ladies fighting in the church, and they're prominent. We'll see. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you, true companion. So someone, he's telling someone, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So after all this stuff comes down, Paul says, Great stuff, right? Glorious truths, right? 
our names written in the book of life, right? Stop fighting. I entreat you, get along. As he says in another book, if you bite and devour one another, you're going to consume each other. It's really easy when things get uncomfortable to do two things. Shut down and just ignore the person. Or if things get really bad, you take off. Like leave the church. Kind of like go on vacation for a couple weeks, come back, and then go on. Or Or make a big stink on the way out. We are not meant to leave conflicts unresolved. Now there are times to leave, sure. But at the same time, we're sinners, it's going to happen. And the Bible is concerned that we reconcile with each other instead of taking off. Now think about all the innumerable times that Paul could have told the believers to split from a church. Hey, take off. Like there's Galatia, dealing with heresy about the very gospel itself. Or there's Philippi, who's dealing with infighting. And then there's Corinthia, who's dealing with infighting, social oppression, sexual misconduct, favoritism, drunkenness, entertaining false teachers. And they were really messed up. And yet, Paul's goal first and foremost is to bring them together in repentance and restore proper fellowship. That is the impulse. We are to grow in maturity with one another. That's why, in a sense, we say, when we talk about membership, we're not saying like social club. We're saying, are we committed to each other? Stick it through thick and thin. Work out conflict. Work through issues. Love each other. Love each other. Love each other. So we're doing get through conflict with one another. We are also to encourage each other. We are tasked to look after each other spiritually, not just the elders, not just the pastors and deacons. We are meant to look after each other's spiritual well-being together. So we have to take active daily interest in the spiritual well-being of each other. Active. You have to do something. Daily interest in the spiritual well-being of one another. We have to take the initiative. So it says, for example, consider how to stir each other up to good deeds. Okay. It's like, this should be a no-brainer. We have phones. Text message. You don't have to interrupt the person's day and make them pick up a phone call. Although that should be nice, right? You could text someone a verse encouraging them. You could send an email encouraging them. Or you could actually spend time with each other, which is probably even better, encouraging each other. I mean, we're being lied to by the world, day in, day out, being drawn away, like things trying, and you, and you can't play lone wolf on this. We're supposed to be engaged with one another, helping each other, seeing things in each other's lives, calling it out, and encouraging each other. So we are to encourage each other. And finally, and I left this for last purposefully, we share our stuff together. I thought about starting here first, because you read Acts, like Acts chapter 2, and they shared everything in common, there is not a poor permanent person among them. But I think it's important, first of all, to recognize that we are family, that we love each other with affection, that we work through hard issues together, encourage one another. And so the natural outflow of all of that would be that we share our stuff together. Now, I, this could be a whole series unto itself, and I actually suspect we're going to do a series on this. I'm not saying that, yeah. The, the eldership, we're, we're, we're working on reading through some material on mercy, mercy ministries. 
which involves giving stuff to people who are in need and helping each other. Because there are like thousands of verses on this. That's uh, an overstatement. There's so many verses on this, I, like, I have to turn this down to something. The Christian community is expected as an outflow of all of this to respond together as a family in such a way that we provide financially and materially for one another. To such a degree that, as it said in Acts, there was not a needy person among them. We are to bear each other's burdens, open our homes to those in our fellowship. We should be willing to reduce our standard of living to help people. And not just people in our own congregation. This is a a love, like giving money was something that was also expressed across churches. Like Paul's in Macedonia and they're giving money to churches in Jerusalem who are about to go through a famine. So like the churches were taking care of each other. So there's this, um, okay, so after the apostles die, and then, like, the next generation after the apostles. Um, there's a story. There was a guy, he was in uh, Africa, and he was an actor. Like, pagan actor. Like, bad news acting. Like, worshiping gods. And, and he gets saved. And everybody immediately recognizes you cannot be an actor that glorifies pagan gods and be a Christian simultaneously. You have to give that up. So this guy's like, not, like, he is, like, upper class, Lots of money, but like all that money is going away. So with joy, he leaves. So now what? His profession. He's like, have you seen these hands? <laughs> no calluses. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like, like, what skill do I have? So the church started banding together and providing for this person as he got on his feet. And getting on his feet, he's like, I have a great idea. I'm going to start an acting school. And so he's like, I'm not acting. But I, but I can use my profession. And so it ended up being kind of this little bit of a controversy. So they, they email a, email. <laughs> so they write a letter to a, um, a, a church leader. His name is Clement. And they said, hey, we got this guy who's an actor and he wants to do a teaching school. Is that okay? And he's like, no! That's not okay. He can't, like, he can't perpetuate the practice of worshiping pagans. Take care of them. And if you don't have the money, we'll send it. If you don't have the money, we'll send it. Like, t- what does it take to get this person out of out of this lifestyle and on the path to righteous living? Let's do it. The gospel is doing what it's supposed to be doing. He's going to be pulling people out of lifestyles that they can't continue anymore. There was a I have uh, Tony Arns uh, down in Potter Valley, and there's this guy who lives at their church. He's in his fifties. And Georgie, so cool. And Georgie was a pot grower, making good money. And they, he met Tony Arns, a pastor at rodeos. And Tony Arns started telling him about the gospel. And Georgie's getting interested. And then finally, one day he says, you know, Tony, I grow pot. And Tony's like, really? <laughs> the truck. <laughs> The cash, like, really? Okay, but he's glad he's confessing his sins, right? He's like, I, gr- I grow pot. He's like, he's like, now, Georgie, you realize if you pursue this, 
You're going to lose your house, your car, maybe your wife, maybe your kids. So I don't want you going into this blind. Know that it's going to cost you, but it'll be worth everything to you. So Georgie thought about it long and hard. Georgie's now a Christian. Guess what? He lost his home. He lost his truck. His wife divorced him. He doesn't get to see his kids very often. He lives at the church. He doesn't have a profession that he can live by, so he started milling wood on people's property. He's the happiest guy I've met. Joy. Just seeping from this guy. So in love with God. And the church took care of him as he was transitioning. Brandon was reminding me of this verse. We've been talking about this a little bit. And there's uh, Ephesians 4.28 where it says, Let the thief steal no more, but rather let him do honest work with his own hands. Why? Like, What's the why? Why? So that he may have something to share with someone in need. In other words, why should you work hard? Why do you earn all this money? To provide? Yes, for those in need. Because we are a family. Now turn to First John chapter 3. This will be the last one. Not that I should be excusing the fact I'm reading scripture in a sermon. First John chapter 3. He says, Behold, behold what love, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason that the world, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that you know He appeared in order to take away sin... And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So in other words, there's two families in this world, ultimately. Children of God, children of the devil. Either Practicing righteousness or living in sin. The reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And starts putting people into a new family. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Ha! Talk about a twist. I didn't see that coming. He's like, keeps on sinning, and he just totally switches to like, 
does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, the archetypal bad brother, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look, do that again. By this we know love, that we were loved by God, that we were loved by Christ. How? Because Christ came and he laid down his life for us. So likewise, turn it around. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone, and look, here it is. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you see someone in need in your fellowship and you close off your heart to that person, how does the love of God abide in you? The foundation of our love for each other is the outflow that God has loved us. Behold the manner of love the Father has given to us, that we are the children of God, that He laid down His life for us, that He adopted us into the family. We are born again. We belong to the kingdom of God, and there is a day coming when you have the, the riches, inheritance ever known to anybody, that you will sit with Christ, that you will judge the angels. What amazing love is that? And you cannot open your heart to another person. You cannot love them, lay down your life for them, forgive them, work through hard issues together, encourage them. It cannot be. So we share in communion. We sit at the table of our Father like a family. Because this is the family to which we belong. So let's eat together. So if the ushers will come forward and the worship team. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, 
says, For I have received from the Lord, which he has also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when they had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, y'all 
proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah, because it's a, it's a corporate thing. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to be good brothers and sisters to one another. And we know that there are manifold needs even in our own congregation. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to be good brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that we would love each other with affection. Lord, that we would grow with each other, we encourage each other, that we'd work through conflict with each other, Lord. Because this unity displays the unity that is in you. That you, the Father, love the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son love the, the triune unity, Lord, is reflecting the fact that we are one people. So, Lord, help us in this, and may we shine then as lights to broken communities, people who have broken families, misplaced priorities. Lord, may your family be an attraction to the Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.